The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to turn your Bible to Romans chapter 12. After public speaking and going to the dentist, I suppose that many people would indicate conflict as an activity they most dread. Well, there are a few strange souls that enjoy conflict. Most of us avoid it like the plague. This morning, the associate pastors begin a three-part sermon series on biblical peacemaking. My aim this morning is to convince you that every conflict you ever face at home, at work, in the church, out in public, is an opportunity to glorify God, to love your neighbor and to grow in God's grace. To help us in this effort, we consult Paul's writings in Romans chapter 12, beginning verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, once again, I would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our true rock and redeemer. Amen. A church administrator met with his senior pastor to address various issues that were hindering the ministry of the church. This senior pastor had a tendency to procrastinate on making decisions, adding unnecessary stress upon the rest of the staff. He ignored deadlines and expected everyone else to drop what they were doing and give focus to his agenda at the last minute. In response to various problems with the ministry, this pastor had a tendency to accuse others, to blame shift, and not take responsibility for his own faults. Not surprisingly, staff morale was low and the ministry was suffering. 
Well, in response to complaints from staff and lay leaders, this church administrator took it upon himself to bring these to the attention of the senior pastor for the good of the church. After prayerful and careful preparation, the two met, and the administrator raised these issues, and he thought that it had gone pretty well. The senior pastor didn't react with anger and seemed to nod in acknowledgement, recognizing some of these issues within their staff relations. However, over the next few days and weeks, the pastor's disposition towards his administrator changed. At a staff meeting, he made mocking comments in the direction of his administrator. At a committee meeting, he barked orders and made rude and condescending gestures and comments towards him. The administrator learned too late that he had not been invited to an important meeting in which the decisions were made without him that would normally have consulted his input. This administrator was tempted to resent his senior pastor, to talk about him behind his back, but he remained resolved to love him. To address this tension with humility and graciousness for the good of the church and the glory of God. Let me assure you that I'm not rehearsing existing problems between our own senior pastor and church administrator, two men I hold in very high regard. But this is a compilation of various stories I have read and heard about over the years. In many ways, our church stands out a bit as one that exemplifies better, healthy, biblical peacemaking when I understand so many schisms and divisions that afflict many of our sister Bible-believing churches. And yet, even in our own church, there is still plenty of room for improvement. Is there any wonder why many people avoid conflict, not wanting to rock the boat or stir up waves out of fear of retaliation? not wanting to suffer the same negative consequences of this brave church administrator. Whether with a boss, a colleague, a neighbor, a spouse, we approach conflict timidly, with anxiety and trepidation. Paul writes to a very convicted church at Corinth, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And here in Romans 12, the apostle unpacks this grand exposition of the gospel in the prior chapters, summarizing this admonishment, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So rather than avoid conflict, conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. Ken Sandy, the founder of Peacemaker Ministries and author of the classic book by the same name, defines conflict as a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. Conflict can result from a simple misunderstanding, a difference in values or goals, competition over limited resources, and sinful attitudes that lead to sinful words and actions. 
Sandy describes a, a, a rainbow-shaped slippery slope, and our responses to conflict at the top is a, is a biblical response to conflict. And on one side are escape responses, and on the other side are attack responses. He describes them as peace fakers who respond to conflict uh, with avoidance and denial. And then there's also peace breakers who respond in conflict with accusation and manipulation. We're reminded from his book that God is a God of peace who reconciled us to himself through the blood of Jesus. While we were still sinners, enemies with God, hating God and one another, Christ died for us. The Corinthians, Paul exhorted them to serve as ambassadors of reconciliation. But James highlights the, the very root of our conflict. He says, Do they not come from the desires that are at war within your hearts? This issue was so important to Jesus that he commanded his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount to leave their gift of sacrifice at the altar, to leave the place of worship. And go to your brother and be reconciled if he has something against you. But we don't do it. It's of our pride, our idol of comfort, laziness, our selfish priorities, our fear of man. Here in this passage, we have clear gospel application, where Paul aims to replace our self-absorption with a consuming passion to draw attention to the power and grace of God in our lives. Conflict is an opportunity to glorify God. And if we are not glorifying God, we will inevitably be glorifying something else. It's an opportunity to love people in the likeness of Christ, to grow in grace through faith in Christ, and to serve as a witness for Christ. This passage is like Paul's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the the Beatitudes of the application of his long exposition of the gospel. And similar to Jesus, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Tell that to the Iraqi Christian about to be beheaded by ISIS. Offer that to the Chinese congregation being expelled from their rented facilities. Offer that counsel to a Christian florist or baker being sued for their stance for biblical marriage. You and I, in all likelihood, have very few true enemies. But there are many people in our lives who can act like enemies and even arouse the enemy within us in times of conflict. One of the best ways that we can bless others is by treating them with dignity and respect even when they are not showing us the same. I'm not currently serving, but in recent years I have served as the president of a local Little League baseball organization, there are a few things like youth sports that can raise the ire of parents in the heat 
of competition. And we had a situation with a parent who made life very difficult for one of our coaches with loud and angry outbursts, objections, confrontations on and off the field, even physical threats. I admired the way this coach handled himself, responding with respect, even when he was not receiving respect, and giving this parent's child chance after second chance after chance, when most coaches would have benched him or kicked him off the team. This coach did everything that I counseled him to do, and more, long-suffering with a very difficult family. You can endure much more than you think you can when you are not consumed with your own ego. When you are determined to show respect, to look people in the eye, and to be a blessing even when people are cursing. As president, it was not uncommon for parents to come to me with complaints about a coach or another board member or another family And in response to that complaint, I would commonly ask, well, have you gone to that person to talk with them about it? And you can guess what their common reply was. Well, of course not. That's why I'm coming to talk to you. Well, I have the opportunity on the spot to have Bible study. To go to Matthew 18. You have a problem with somebody? Well, here's what Jesus says to do. Go to that person. Address the issue personally and relationally demonstrate respect, seek understanding, make your case, and work it out. Sometimes parents actually did that, and guess what? It worked out. I would offer to go with them or appoint another board member to go with them if it was a a serious matter. But more often than not, parents just wanted to vent, to be listened to, and we conclude that it was not serious enough to warrant a formal confrontation, especially when they realized I was not going to solve their problem for them. When believers fulfill the law of love, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, and live in harmony with one another, there will be conflict. We can't avoid it. Paul says, do not be haughty. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not repay evil with evil. We cannot do this. When we are loving ourselves, when we are saving face, when we are demanding respect or thinking that we are better than other people, a committed peacemaker dies to self. He gives up his rights to himself. She is more concerned with God's honor and the good of others than her own. But this does not mean that you're a doormat to be walked over. Jesus wasn't. Neither was Paul. These men were bold as lions, and yet did it with love. They were entering into conflict all over the place, but did so putting first God's glory. As they were challenging authorities, correcting knuckleheaded disciples, they pointed people to the living God, seeking his glory first, and secondly, understanding that people needed truth and lasting peace, even if it meant giving up peace for a time. 
Conflict is not an opportunity to cut other people down, to win arguments, to get our own way. Conflict is an opportunity to confess sin, to forgive sin, to restore broken relationships, to show the love of Christ for the glory of God. These words in Romans 12, to bless and rejoice, to weep, to live in harmony, to not be proud or vindictive, to do what is honorable in the sight of others. All of these are indicatives. All of these are expressions of the mature Christian life. As we grow in the likeness of Him who did all these things on our behalf and more. Conflict is one of God's surprising graces in our lives. It provides the opportunity to grow in grace as vulnerable, healthy, and whole people in Christ. I heard about a young couple years ago who had seemed very perfect for each other. All during their dating relationship and courtship, they got along and never seemed to fight. And then they got married. After a few years, things weren't looking so good. It turns out this couple, both of them were very selfish and used to getting their own way. They, before they got married, had never raised issues, and they somehow had managed to avoid conflict. But marriage forced them to deal with one another on an ongoing, daily basis. They had not learned some of the essential skills of communication and healthy boundaries and compromise and empathy. Each was blind to his or her own issues. Neither of them understood how to confess sin, take ownership of his or her faults, to apologize. Their impulse was only to accuse, not confess. When I do premarital counseling, I want to see some conflict. I believe that a couple is not really ready for marriage unless they've done some conflict and learned how to work it out to do it well and to grow and learn from it. Months ago, I read a sports article about the Seattle Seahawks defense nicknamed last season the Legion of Boom, most effective defense in the NFL at stifling opposing offenses. What was unique and chief and among the practices at the Seattle Seahawks was their, their frequency of conflict. It appears that their, their practices were filled with very direct and constructive criticism, not just from coaches, but from fellow players critiquing one another's play. If you didn't like to be called out publicly, if you were a prickly, this was not the team for you. In their zeal for excellence and commitment to improve not only their own skills. They were determined to help their teammates grow in excellence for the good of the whole. They were vulnerable with one another, trusting one another's judgments to help them overcome their weaknesses. They had a mission that was higher than individual ego, a commitment to a goal bigger than self. Such is the characteristic of a winning team. Nationally known author and consultant Patrick Lencioni says the same thing about corporate America. He meets with leadership, executive leadership teams across the country, and 
he finds that oftentimes problems are evidenced by not too much conflict, but, but too little constructive conflict. As executives are running around doing their own thing, focused on personal goals, focused on department goals, and fail to address and follow the corporate mission. In their executive leadership meetings, there's a lack of vulnerability. There's not a sharing of weaknesses and addressing problems. And when that happens, it breeds a lack of trust, a reluctance to confront, and very little accountability. Effective leadership provides a clear mission, demonstrates humble vulnerability, admitting weaknesses, develops trust and builds confidence to own the mission, to own goals, and to acknowledge shortcomings. Effective leadership confronts weakness, holds people accountable to the mission of the organization. Excellence is not possible without conflict. Our church is a team. Your marriage is a team. Your family is a team. The people you serve with in ministry is a team. And you need healthy, constructive conflict to stay on mission and grow in Christ. Jesus gave us a mission of reconciliation to a world in desperate conflict. Our mission is too critical. To squander it in petty self-centeredness. The gospel gives us the freedom to be vulnerable, to admit weakness, to confess our sins, to forgive other people's sins. An identity that's rooted and grounded in Christ is set free to say hard things and challenge people without fear of backlash, and even to receive criticism without shrinking and dissolving, recognizing that we are all sinners saved by God's grace. Conflict is worth it and necessary for growth and to bring praise and honor and glory to Christ. But sometimes we may be willing to engage in conflict to the glory of God, but the other party is not willing. And sometimes we are able to walk away from certain relationships or resign our membership from a church or organization that is not committed to biblical peacemaking. There are other times when we can't walk away without neglecting our other biblical obligations. Parents must still honor their parents, and parents must still love their children, even if they're uncooperative in addressing family problems. There are times when we can't leave a difficult job and must continue to endure the harsh treatment of a boss even after trying to raise issues and address matters of conflict. A wife must still submit to a husband who won't listen, who is not loving well and not taking responsibility for himself. Christ still requires a husband to love his wife who can't admit fault, and refuses to apologize. The body of Christ is obligated to serve and love one another and not justify passive inaction because another party remains obstinate. 
And it's because of this reality in a fallen world, Paul offers these challenging words of instruction in verses 19 through 21. Our natural reaction to attack is to retaliate. And to counter this human tendency, Paul says in verse 19, never avenge yourselves. But this does not mean we give up any hope of justice. He goes on to say, leave judgment to God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When we take justice into our own hands, we are saying to God, I know better. We refuse him to be the judge of all the earth. It's here that the testimony of Peter is helpful. Having witnessed the only man who ever perfectly and consistently fulfilled this command, he writes in his first letter, chapter 2, concerning Jesus, when he was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus was vindicated by God who rose him from the dead. And God will vindicate you if you trust him. Die to self and persevere in leaving vengeance in God's hands. But this does not require us to be merely passive. We don't simply have to take it when another person is determined to be our enemy. Verse 20 exhorts us to take action, to be assertive by doing good. Quoting Proverbs 25, Paul writes, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, Paul is not advocating physical harm on your enemies. He's making an allusion to the ancient world where a defensive tactic in a walled city was to heat up coal or tar and pour it upon invaders trying to scale the walls. It was a nearly irresistible force of defense. And so in like matter, your actions of goodness and kindness and persistence can be a repellent to overcome the evil of someone determined to be your enemy. And in so doing, you might shame him, soften him, and even blunt his barbed attacks. Author Paul Miller tells the story of a Philadelphia man whose wife became increasingly difficult as she entered into a, a mild case of schizophrenia. The intensity of their conflict got so severe that when her parents passed away, leaving her a sizable inheritance, she moved out and took up residence out of state. And this man's pastoral leadership assured him that he did have biblical grounds for divorce since his wife had abandoned the marriage. But this man, knowing his wife's vulnerability with her mental health, felt compelled to remain in the marriage and continue to minister to his wife. So he not only did not sue for divorce, he regularly visited to her, 
visited her at his own expense to serve her and to find ways to help her out at her new residence, not expecting much in return. His wife welcomed his efforts, and yet she continued to criticize him as she had before. This man certainly did hope to win his wife back, but his greater desire was to serve his Savior, to please his God and Father, whether his wife reciprocated or not. This man does something that really no pastor could oblige and obligate a man to do. And yet he demonstrates well that when we feel like we are at the end of ourselves, we can find strength through Christ to continue doing good, to love difficult people, even when they do not respond the way we would like. Christ is enough even when we don't see the rewards or the results that we might desire in this life. As already mentioned, the church administrator did not respond to the senior pastor's sinful behavior with sinful reactions of his own. He chose to patiently endure the efforts of the pastor to marginalize him, determined to show him the respect that God requires towards those in authority drawing courage from this church administrator, other staff members, and lay leaders in the church began to stand up to the pastor, demonstrating the same respectful demeanor exemplified by their heroic staff leader. God used their gracious confrontations to humble this pastor, to lead him to repentance, With genuine tears, he sought out the forgiveness of his church administrator and exonerated him publicly at staff meeting and the upcoming session meeting. The Lord worked so powerfully in his heart. This pastor was bold enough to acknowledge his sin to the whole congregation, to commend the peacemaking actions of his administrator and begin to preach a series much like this one to help the church grow in biblical peacemaking. Not every effort at biblical peacemaking will have such a happy ending. But every effort, when done with trust and obedience, is pleasing to God, who desires his people to be unified, to show the same love and grace demonstrated by the life and the death and resurrection of Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are so grateful that you have made peace, reconciling us to yourself through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, And you have called us to be peacemakers, which seems like a daunting task, but we know that your grace is sufficient for everything that you command and call us to do. Give us your grace, your peace, and your wisdom to be peacemakers in the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.